بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم محمد is not the father of any one of your men but he is the messenger of Allah and last of the prophets and ever is Allah of all things knowing Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Welcome to Live in London Inshallah tonight we'll be discussing the beloved of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Habibullah, the greatest of creations, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi. But who was Prophet Muhammad? And what was Mecca like at the time of his birth? Were the Meccans expecting a Prophet? And also, what were the challenges and tribulations that came across Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi? Who were the family members that played a pivotal role in helping him achieve his message? Inshallah, we'll be discussing this and a lot more with Dr. Sayyid Amar Nakshwani. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. How are you this Alhamdulillah, very well. Mashallah, we'd like to thank all the viewers for uh, this Ramadan campaign and for joining us with the discussions of Sayyid Amar, which will be available online on YouTube, as well as being converted onto podcasts and available on different podcast platforms. Now, some of you may be uh, looking at the background and seeing a flag behind us. And mashallah, after the live show, we will be having another discussion, hashtag I am Husseini, where we'll be discussing what it means to be Husseini and how you yourselves can help support our channel and have a chance for your name to be written on the flag, which will be later taken to Karbala and will be taken to the shrines of Abba Abdullah Hussein and also of Abu Fadl Abbas. Inshallah, we pray that all those watching get a chance to go to do ziyarah, inshallah, inshallah. in Karbala and in Najaf, inshallah. But for tonight's topic, say that Amar. You've chosen the, the seal of the prophets, arguably the greatest uh, creation ever and the dearest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi. What does Muhammad mean and what are these other names and titles that he's known by? Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. Uh, it's been a huge honor to be able to discuss the prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned in the Quran. And no greater an honor, last but certainly not least, than to discuss the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and his family. Like all the rest of these prophets, an hour or just above an hour is not justice. They all deserve to have series of lectures on them. But we try as best as we can to take certain aspects of their life which we're able to apply into our lives and into our discussions and to our spiritual growth today, he has, of course, the name which he is most famous for, which is Muhammad. And this is a reference to him being praiseworthy. And indeed, if you look at the name by which Jesus spoke, Ahmed, Muhammad and Ahmed, the base of all of them is one who is praiseworthy and the all praised and it's as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as Abu Talib said wonderfully that Allah ripped from his name Mahmud and he named him Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa wasallam and that's why you'll find that many of us in one of the most beautiful du'as that we can recite Allahumma anni as'aluka bihaqqi Muhammad wa antal Mahmud وَبِحَقِّ عَلِي وَأَنْتَ 
أعلى وبحق فاطمة وأنت فاطر السماوات والأرض وبحق الحسن وأنت المحسن وبحق الحسين وأنت قديم الأحسان Therefore that name Muhammad صلى الله عليه وآله وأحمد These are names which refer to the fact that this is a personality praised by prophets. Praised by the Lord who sent those prophets. Praised by the whole of mankind. And until today, subhanallah, he is someone who people reserve their hamd for. They praise him and they're thankful as well at the same time to him for everything that he gave back to them. Now that of course is not his only title. Many prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have titles related to their names. We had seen in the story of Nabi Shu'aib alayhi salam that his title was Khatib al-Anbiya, the orator of the, or the orator of the prophets. And likewise with the Holy Prophet, peace be upon his family. In the Quran, there are many titles that he has. He is a nur. He is a siraj. He is a light to mankind. He is someone who is a hadi. He is a guide to mankind. He is a Bashir and a Nadir. He gives glad tidings as well as is a warner to those who are around him. We find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala likewise in the Quran call him out with Muzzammil and Muddathar. So all of these are different titles. But of course the most famous name is Muhammad the Praiseworthy which we all utter many times a day. Yes. Insightful. Sayyidah Mar, let's look at Mecca now. Now we know that Mecca was founded by Nabi Ismail along with his father. And one could argue that if these are the founders of Mecca, and you know, there must have been some sort of community that were expecting a prophet to come, especially from that lineage of Hazrat uh, Ismail. I think the problem is that that lineage of Ismail was a lineage which Paul tried his hardest to belittle. Paul worked actively to try and show that the line of Sarah and Ishaq is greater than the line of Hagar and Ismail. And what Paul knew and why Paul went passionately in delivering letters like to Corinthians where he stresses on the fact that the line of Ismail is not one which is blessed by God. The line of Ismail is not one which is to be revered. The line of Ismail is not one that brings about bounties. And as I said yesterday, I believe that Christianity today is Paul's religion. And I believe that a lot of the theology of Christianity today is Paul. The reality is that we find that Abraham... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed his generations. He blessed his descendants. And he blessed them with prophets from the line of Israel, Nabi Yaqub alayhi salam, from his father Ishaq, all the way down. But as we mentioned yesterday, 600 of these prophets, people sought to kill them. People sought to assassinate them as well. Therefore, when we come to Looking at the line originally, the children of Israel had started to become too arrogant. We are the chosen people of God. They used to look down at others. God decided that the covenant of leadership that he had made with Ibrahim, Ibrahim did not have one son, 
Ibrahim had Ishaq, son of Sarah. But he also, as we mentioned in our series of talks, had Ismail, the son of Hajar. And they and their descendants remained where? In the land of Mecca. And there were a group of people who were living in Mecca who took pride in the fact that they were from the line of Ibrahim salam. They did not get affected by the tide of the others who had swayed to other ways. They on the contrary were happy to follow the monotheism of Ibrahim established by Ismail and the descendants of Ismail salam. And you find that of them, for example, was Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon his family. Of them, for example, was Abu Talib. Of them was Khuwailid and his daughter Khadija. Therefore, clearly, in Mecca, there were still people following the Abrahamic law who had not been affected by idol worship at all. Within the loins of these people, they could have a prophet. I said, you can't just say that the 12 tribes from the line of uh, Israel are the only ones who should have a prophet raised from amongst them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decided that the children of Israel had neglected prophets, had attacked prophets, had sought to crucify prophets. Allah decided that now a messenger was to emerge. Another point, why was there a big Jewish community in Medina? Why? Unless they knew and had read in the original scriptures that there would be a Messiah who will emerge. And that's why I believe Paul knew that there would be another Messiah who would emerge. Hence his attack on the line of Ismail And likewise the Jews were well aware in Medina Otherwise, why would they all be living there? They're not to live in Jerusalem, for example. Why are they all living in Medina? Because they knew that there were prophecies that in the land where they were living would emerge the final prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes. Excellent. Sayyid, you mentioned that you know, in Mecca, idol worshipping became you know, quite apparent and normal. What other social and moral um, you know, customs can we say was were there at the time of... Yes, you know, Mecca was affected by, by a major period of ignorance. Look, these people believed in God. But believing in God doesn't stop you from deviating into a wrong type of worship or theology. These people believed in prophets of God, but that doesn't stop you from deviating into a wrong type of belief system or theology. These people believed in Hajj. But believing in Hajj doesn't stop you from deviating into a wrong type of theology. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon his family, emerges in a Mecca that believes in God but has made idols to represent that God. Okay. Grows up in a Mecca that believes in Ibrahim. Alayhi salam. But has forgotten the message of Ibrahim. Grows up in a Mecca that goes around the Kaaba. Honors the Kaaba, sees the Kaaba as a source of blessing. But go around and tawaf naked, sacrifice their animals and throw their blood, gossip in the period of Hajj. 
Likewise, a Mecca that because it had not understood the true Abrahamic teachings were people who were of impure ways. You know when the Quran says, Yuzakihim means that part of the mission of the prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is when there's a period of impurity, social impurity, moral impurity, political impurity, economic impurity and injustice, they emerge to purify those people. There were people burying girls alive. There were fathers who were swapping wives with their sons. There were husbands swapping wives with their best friends. The drinking of alcohol and adultery was a norm. It wasn't an environment which had honored the legacy of Ibrahim And it was only the presence of Abdul Muttalib and the presence of the likes of Khadija and Abu Talib that ensured that the legacy of Ibrahim remained alive because it reached the stage on the year of the birth of the Prophet peace be upon him and his family where Mecca and the Kaaba were about to be destroyed. In the famous incident known as the incident of the elephant or the event of the elephant. Alam tara kayfa fa'ala rabbuka bi ashabil feel. You know why this story of ashabil feel is repeated to them? Because the story of ashabil feel was a story 40 years before the Quran was revealed. So why is the Qur'an talking of this incident to them? To remind them how many more favors do we need you to understand the line of Ismail has provided for you? How many more blessings? Have you forgotten what happened on the incident of the elephant? When that king by the name of Abraha was ready to come and destroy the Kaaba, he was not happy that the Kaaba was a center of blessing and wanted to establish his Church, were it not for the presence of Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of Muhammad, peace be upon his family, there would be no Kaaba. Abdul Muttalib, Abu Talib, they were all from that line of purity. And it was because of them. Therefore, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon his family, was born in that year as well. There were two blessings there. One blessing was that the Kaaba wasn't destroyed. The other blessing, that year the Prophet, peace be upon him, his family was born. But the environment in which he was born was important because people sometimes imagine that to be religious, you have to be in a religious country. I've seen people who've, who've left and gone to study in the Middle East when they were going through their bad boy days. So they think that when you go to Iraq or you go to Iran to study, you're not going to be a bad boy anymore. You're going to be this really religious guy. What you, you sometimes go there and you realize, you know what, it was a bit healthier where I was rather than where I am. And many people don't realize religiosity, environment plays a role. But you still have to have that willpower and you still have to have that self-discipline. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon his family, was not born in an environment that was religious. There's no such things, for example, as, oh, let's stay away from alcohol. Oh, you shouldn't eat haram food. How many ayahs do you see in Surah Al-Ma'idah about food, halal, haram, what you can eat, what you can't eat? People had forgotten, for example, about the laws of, you know, marriage and respecting those laws. People were beating their wives, abusing their wives. 
There were brothels there as well, as the Quran mentions. There were all these things there. But the Holy Prophet, peace be upon his family, highlighted to you. However irreligious the society you're living in, don't blame it. You can still emerge as Sadiq and as Ameen. It's interesting where you've put that. And I mean, you're talking and you're discussing about that even though in such an environment, the Prophet's family was still adamant and still staying with the monotheism and theology of Prophet Abraham. But what about the parents of Rasulullah? Not much is mentioned. And even were they Muslim, could we say? The Shia school, the followers of Ahl al-Bayt, are the most passionate in saying, and we bring up all our families on this, that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, his family, his mother, Amina, believer in Allah, monotheist. His father, Abdullah, believer in Allah, monotheist. His uncle, Abu Talib, believer in Allah, monotheist. His grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, believer in Allah, monotheists. These were all monotheists, Hanifs, and shirk did not touch them. Other schools in Islam are very confident and very proud to say that Abu Talib, yeah, uh, died as a kafir. Um, Abdullah, yeah, died as a kafir. Amina, yeah, they're all burning in hell. Prophet couldn't do anything about it. Have some respect for yourself. Have some respect. There's only so much when I could say, look, I respect the opinions of other schools in Islam. But, you know, there's moments where you have to have that respect for oneself. And these guys, in some cases, there's no respect. How dare you say that the man who has come to mankind as a mercy, the purest human being. How could you say that his father was a disbeliever and a mushrik? They say, well, Ibrahim's father was. We already proved that Ibrahim's father died. And he was raised by his uncle, the Mushrik. That uncle! Because when your father's died, your uncle's the one who's looking after you. You call him Ab. Otherwise, we believe that the ancestors of the prophets, they were all one after the other of the prostrators to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that we repeat always in our ziyara. You know, sometimes ziyara literature is as educational as a book on theology. I always say the du'as of Ahlul Bayt and the ziyarat of Ahlul Bayt and the khutab and the sermons of Ahlul Bayt are the best for us to understand our aqaid. In our ziyarat literature we say ashhadu annaka kunta nuran fil aslab ash-shamikha wal arham al-mutahhara lam lam tunajjiska al-jahiliya bi-anjasiha. Imam al-Hussein in his line, going back to his grandfather and his grandfather's grandfather's grandfather, never will you find within them somebody who committed shirk. We are the lovers of Amina, the lovers of Abdullah, Abdul Muttalib, Abu Talib, and we remain passionate about defending their iman and their belief in monotheism. Now you mentioned Abu Talib and you mentioned that these guys, uh, these guys, the family of Rasulullah, were monotheists and had a very, very strong theology, very, very strong aqaid. Now, do you think that Abu Talib himself knew who Rasulullah truly was and this man was de destined for glory? Of course, Abu Talib is one of the bearers of Jesus' message. 
Abu Talib had the knowledge of the Torah and the Injil and the Zabur and the Noahide laws, all of them he had. Let's make this clear. Abu Talib, I don't just love Abu Talib because Abu Talib is the uncle of my prophet. Abu Lahab is the uncle of a prophet. Allah on Abu Lahab. He's the uncle of a prophet. I don't care. Abu Talib is one of the awsiya of the Anbiya. Abu Talib is a beacon of Iman and a beacon of faith. Abu Talib knew and catered and looked after like Abdul Muttalib. They were the ones preparing the ground for that final message of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi, the message which had been the message of all the previous prophets and that is submission to the one God, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Abu Talib alayhi salam knew very well and we knew, discussed yesterday, said Mahsin, we discussed that when they went to Syria and that monk was yes, there yes. and that monk, the monk knew that this is a prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Abu Talib did not know. Mm-hmm. Abu Talib alayhi salam looked after this religion and was a backbone that were it not for him, there would be no Islam today. Yeah. Now, Abu Talib being one backbone, and another backbone, a very, very important figure in the life of the Prophet, was his wife, Sayyidah Khadija. I mean, how important was her role in this whole uh, mission of Rasulullah? Well, don't forget, the Prophet, peace be upon his family, his early life was extremely difficult. His dad died while his mm-hmm. mom was pregnant with him. His mom, Amina, died a few years later. May Allah bless us to visit their graves near the land of Medina. And then what you have is that you have quite wonderfully Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather, looks after the Prophet, peace be upon his family. When Abdul Muttalib dies, Abu Talib looks after him. And Abu Talib is the one who begins to initiate. He tells him, go with Khadija, work for her. And when Khadija sees that this Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa is a man who is trustworthy, truthful. Everybody in Mecca admired him because he was a sadaq al-ameen. Not a forgery, not a liar. Even those who became his enemies later would deposit some of their gold with him because they knew this man will never steal anything, although we don't like him. Khadija became that backbone for him. Who done the... Who read the nikah, who read the marriage vows of, or who read the katb iktab of Khadija and the Holy Prophet, peace be upon his family? Who was it? Abu Talib. And Khadija, alayhi salam, no doubt you find she was a lady. If there were ladies who had daughters who were about to be buried alive, she'd say, listen, come home, I'll look after you. And I, you know, you look at her title, Tahira, the pure one. You know, you look at her title, she's the Amira of Quraysh, the princess of Quraysh. She's the mother of all the Masakeen, the needy. There is no doubt that Fatima's greatness came from the beauty of a mother like Khadija salam. So you found that he marries Khadija and she's pivotal in those early years of his life. And she becomes even more pivotal when he announces his prophethood. Yeah. Now say it. We have Rasulullah and he's you know, amongst the Arabs uh, and, and you've, you've touched upon how he used to live and how he was uh, admired and how he was trusted amongst mm. the Arabs. And then we have, you know, let's go fast forward a little bit to him in the cave and, and uh, you know, the angel Jibreel coming, uh, coming to him. Was the Prophet 
a, a person who's just you know walking around just, just assuming that there's something wrong with the world or did he know that he was a prophet oh he knew he was a prophet if Jesus from the cradle could say if Jesus from the cradle could say I am a servant of Allah he has given me the book and made me a a prophet, prophet. Muhammad peace be upon him does not know that he's a prophet some people say, but he announced this prophethood at the age of 40. Yes, announcing doesn't mean you didn't know. You're waiting for the command from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for you to now begin your message publicly. Otherwise, before that, he used to go to Ghar Hira. Why? Mm -hmm. To go and chill in a cave? He used to know that he's a prophet of Allah. He used to communicate from that time with the angels. Already he knew of the message of the previous prophets. The Arabs used to say he is As-Sadiq and Al-Ameen. And one of the most important signs of any prophet is he has to be trustworthy and truthful. If the Arabs had a dispute where somebody's rights were taken, he was part of a group called Hilf al-Fudul, the League of Justice, a covenant made by a group of people to look after the rights of people who used to come and trade in Mecca. When the black stone was to be placed after there was a, a particular flood, he's the one who everybody said will decide who places it, how it's placed. There's no doubt that he knew that he was a prophet of Allah SWT. But it was a matter of time before he announces. Say, so, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe your expertise is in history and you must have done a lot of study on the biography of Rasulullah. In your opinion, what was, like, in, in, let's, say, let's sum it up in three points. What was his mission? What was the mission of Rasulullah? Well, I think the first point is um, a mercy to mankind. You know, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ I think that point Muslims don't stress on enough. Um, he was a mercy to mankind. And that's why you find the Quran in Surah 34 verse 28 also. The second point. We've sent you as a bearer of glad tidings and a warner to all of mankind. So firstly, he's a mercy. Second, to all of mankind, he's the bearer of good news, but also a warner. Thirdly, one line which we could summarize his mission. I have been sent to continue the message of those who have come before me, to perfect it, with the most sublime morals, akhlaq. Rahma, kafa, akhlaq. Three words. A mercy to mankind, the whole of mankind, and his morality. That there's no one who can claim to be a follower of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam unless he has the akhlaq of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa a Muslim is not to be defined by how many ziyaras they've gone on. If they are rude to their family and friends, if they are somebody who has no respect for their elders, somebody who is not of a charitable disposition, somebody who is a racist, somebody who looks down at people because of the countries they're from, that person is far away from Islam. He himself is akhlaq. Makarim al-akhlaq. 
So you may have mahasan al-akhlaq. Mahasan al-akhlaq, what does it mean? Said Mahasan, you do me a favor, I'll do you a favor. Good akhlaq. You've done me one. I've done you one. Tit for tat. Makarim is whether you do me one or you don't, I'll still be good to you. Dua makarim al-akhlaq, Imam Zain al-Abideen. He didn't call it dua mahasan al-akhlaq. Dua makarim al-akhlaq. Therefore, if you want to summarize that mission, which began at the age of 40, you summarize it. These are three points to summarize it with. Yes. Thank you very much. So we're going to go to a short break now. So please join us after the break. We'll continue the discussion on the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi. Join us after the break. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Welcome back to Life in London, where tonight we are discussing Nabi Rasulullah Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. Just a quick reminder if you're wondering why there's a flag behind me, no, I know Musa. After the show, we will be having um, a live show, hashtag I am Husseini, discussing what it means to be Husseini and how you can get involved to support the channel and have a chance to have your name on this flag right here. MashaAllah, you can see there's loads of names from all over the country, I believe Wales and Aberdeen we've been to, collecting the names of supporters. And this flag will be taken to Karbala and will be uh, taken to the shrine of Imam Hussein, inshallah, and then later to the museum of Imam Hussein TV. Sayyidina, we left, we left off at, um, you know, uh, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi. Let's, let's, let's fast forward, let's go. We have the Mab'ath. We had, he's 40 years old now. His mission has begun. It was quite a slow, maybe a hesitant start, we could say. I mean, we have Dhul Shira, we have the, like, you know, the, um, uh, we have the, the dinner, we have, you know, um, whether he's um, ready and he's, you know, he's not out and open saying that I am the Prophet. Please yes, come for, to my for the first few years of his life, um, you find that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ordered him not to come out and openly proclaim the message. Uh, there were circumstances that dictated that he waits for the command of his Lord before he publicly announces the message of the religion of Islam. And then he does announce it a few years later publicly after the famous uh, luncheon, let's call it, held in his house called Da'watul Ashira. As the Quran says, وَأَنذِرْ عَشِيرَتَكَ الْأَقْرَبِينَ he knew it wasn't going to be easy announcing this because a lot of these guys like his own uncle Abu Lahab and people like Abu Sufyan and Abu Jahl and, and so on. These were all running the show in Mecca. They didn't mind girls being buried alive. They didn't mind interest rates destroying people's lives. They didn't mind alcohol and you know prohibited foods being um, drunk and eaten by those who claim to follow Ibrahim. They didn't mind people going around the Kaaba naked. They didn't mind idols being worshipped. And the fact that they didn't mind idols being worshipped meant that 
they didn't want the status quo changed. So you can imagine that when he invites his family members, Abu Talib comes and the young Imam Ali السلام, comes and you've got people like Abu Lahab there and he makes it clear to them, have I ever uttered a lie? And they're like, no, of course you haven't. Have I ever been untrustworthy in any transaction? They say, no, of course you haven't. So he says, then I announce to you that there is no God but God and that I am the final messenger of God. From that day onwards, it was trouble. Because once you've announced, like the prophets before, you looked at every prophet of Allah we've looked at in the Quran. And you'll find at one stage or another, they had a major problem with their own people who were like, you know, we had lots of hope for you. What are you doing announcing this thing? People were thinking, hold on, Muhammad, you were doing all right. Why do you need to announce a prophethood? You know, as if like, you know what, there's no such thing as any prophet coming or anything along those lines. So from then on, you had major animosity that he faced and his companions as well, we should never forget. You know, he faced a lot of animosity. Abu Lahab and his wife, Um Jamil, the sister of Abu Sufyan, probably most disgusting combination of humans ever created. So you find that she was, you know, she wouldn't, she would order people to throw stones at him um, from that day onwards. You know, I don't think the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon his family, had any rest in his life. From being an orphan at a young age to the hatred and the abuse that he received when he announces his prophethood. You know, when, when the Christian medieval churches were calling him the Antichrist or the devil, or when you see Islamophobia today, bigotry and prejudice against Muslims, our Prophet, peace be upon his family, nobody was hurt like he was. He was called the Sahir, a Kahin, Majnoon. And you know, another major test that he had in his life, look at all these tests, just in case Muslims out there think that, why am I being tested? Our Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, his family was tested. Which Prophet have I mentioned in this whole Ramadan series who has not been tested? But can you come through the test with flying colors, with dignity, with discipline, with honor, with integrity? The Hussein at Karbala. was in reality Muhammad, peace be upon him and his family. I'll never forget what that poet says. Which martyr did the sun burn his body? And because of him, the sun was created. And which slaughtered one did the horses trample on his body? Those same horses used to shiver when they used to hear his name. If only those horses knew it was actually Muhammad's body they were trampling on. Wow. When the Prophet, peace be upon his family, used to... Khadija would have a child, child dies. Khadija has a child, child dies. It wasn't an easy time. And they would call him Abtar. Abtar. The one With whose the lineage is cut. Mm -hmm. Allah blessed him. In every occasion, when he was an orphan, he looked after him. He was amongst ignorant people. He raised him towards the greatest position. He lost his sons. Allah gave him a daughter like Fatima. Until today, I ask you a question. One of the meanings of وَرَفَعْنَا لَكَ ذِكْرَكَ is salawat on Muhammad and Al-Muhammad. Another of them is that there are people who honor the wilada and the shahada. Of who? They honor the wilada and the shahada. Of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him and his family.
then there are people out there. Wherever you go in the world, you'll meet Sadat from the line of Fatima al-Zahra So all those years were extremely difficult. The moment he announced his prophethood to the Meccans, they were ready to drive him out. And without a doubt, you have incidents like the Mi'raj, for example. Yes. The Mi'raj, the night journey, was to also give him solace. He met all the prophets of Allah on that journey. Mm -hmm. That Allah is telling him, listen, I'm with you the whole way. That whatever insults they level at you, meet Ibrahim, no, meet Musa, no, meet <laughs> Nuh, no, come here, meet him. It gave him solace in that very difficult time. And until they, they decided that they wanted to kill him. You know, Abu Jahl couldn't take it anymore. Abu Jahl was like, that's it. I want Muhammad dead. And they all planned to kill him. Especially when Abu Talib and Khadija, who were his backbones, mm -hmm. his uncle and his wife, when they died, they thought, this is the moment we could finally kill the man. What they <coughs> realized was that there was another backbone by the name of Ali, son of Abu Talib. And while Imam Ali was around, they weren't going to mess with the Prophet, peace be upon his family. As they saw when they were about to kill him while he was sleeping, sleeping in the bed of the Prophet yeah. on the night of Hijrah. But they forced him to go to Medina because they were ready to assassinate him. But the people of Medina were also ready to welcome him. Yes. Alongside Imam Ali being you know, a very important figure, now a backbone in, uh, in Rasulullah Ali's life. We also have his daughter, Sayyidah Fatima Zahra alayha. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Sayyid, but isn't there a link between the Mihraj and also Sayyidah Fatima? Isn't it something to do with the fruits? Yeah, there are stories like this mentioned, yes, about an apple and so on. But Fatima's greatness has got nothing to do with an apple. Let's be frank about that. You know, people talk about, you know, there was an apple and the Prophet ate it. And I don't need things like that to make Fatima's great. Fatima is Fatima, simple. She's amazing by herself. Yep. And then when he gets to Medina. Yeah, we're looking at Medina now and, and um, how important is it, the constitution of Medina? Yeah, because when he gets to Medina, there are Jews living there, there's Christians there, there's churches there, there's synagogues there, there's Muslims there. And, 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 and he wants everybody to be able to live with each other in peace. He wants uh, the, the people of the book to come in dialogue. Hence, It's a shame when today there are parts of the Middle East when Jews, Muslims and Christians cannot live together in peace. Um, don't get me wrong, I think there are places like Oman where Muslims and non-Muslims, Muslims of different sects have lived in, in, in peace. There are times in Lebanon's history where Muslims and non-Muslims you know, have lived together in peace. Uh, but there are other parts which Muslims, Christians and Jews sadly cannot get together. And I think if everybody reflected on the constitution of Medina, no Muslim will ever transgress the rights of their Jewish and Christian neighbors. Like, um, you know, vice versa. If any Muslim attacks a synagogue, attacks a church, they are to be punished. If any of the Jewish or the Christian community are insulted, then the Muslim is to be punished. That constitution of Medina highlighted the vision of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon his family. I think it's a political document that wasn't just important in Medina. You know, when he becomes the head of the state of Medina, he has to ensure that the members of his state feel that he's going to be a just leader to them. And I think that that constitution of Medina was fundamental in ensuring that they were all living together in peace and prosperity. Now, let's not deny that just because you had a constitution of Medina did not mean you had troublemakers. I think Banu Nadir, Banu Qaynuqa, Banu Qurayza, you know, these were famous Jewish tribes. And I think they knew that, look, let's get Abu Sufyan in here and let Abu Sufyan run havoc. 
And that's why you saw wars like Badr and Uhud and Khandaq and Khaybar. Because Abu Sufyan kept on finding, finding opportunities because of collaborations with people who were committing treason against the state. You know, there were, there were people who were punished in Medina. And, and because of that, you have some people who say that how could the Prophet, who's a mercy to mankind, punish you know, innocent people? Well, if you're committing treason against the state, you know, rational people will accept that anyone who's gone and revealed the secrets of a state where they have a covenant in, that person, there is a punishment for them legally. Yeah. Now you've mentioned, you know, Rasulullah being involved in wars. A lot of you know, Orientalists, or those who want to attack Rasulullah, will use that saying he was a violent man. Some also use the fact that he had more than one wife as the, a man of lust. How, how do we, you know, um, you know uh, how do we... Um, you know, um, refute such things and yeah, and these also... are normally the two areas where he's attacked the most. Let's look at them one by one. Mm -hmm. The first area where he's attacked the most is that they say Muhammad spread his religion by the sword. When Prophet David or King David had wars, he's not a man of war, he is King David, he's Prophet Dawood. You can't say anything, but when the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon his family, had wars then he is a man of war and a man who spreads the religion by the sword. All these wars we mentioned were defensive wars. Someone attacks you, you defend yourself. He didn't initiate a war. There are countries in the world today whose leaders attack Islam and attack the Prophet Muhammad. They've initiated more wars in their lives than anybody else. In the name of we are on a peace-building mission, oil-building mission, sorry, peace-building mission. And with the Prophet, peace be upon him and his family, we find that the, you know, the Holy Prophet is, is just immense in the fact that he mentions, and the Quran mentions his greatest victory is the Hudaybiyah peace treaty. Nobody ever mentions that. Mm -hmm. That the Hudaybiyah peace treaty was his greatest victory. People think Khaybar is his greatest victory. It's not. Hunayn, no. Badr, no. His greatest victory was a peace treaty. Real power. Is when you have power <coughs> but you don't use it. That's someone powerful. Mm -hmm. There's reckless power and there's people who have power, they don't use it. He could have annihilated the Quraysh who were his enemies all that period who had made fun of him and killed his companions and destroyed him and made him migrate. No, the Hudaybiyah peace treaty said, listen, let's do a peace treaty. No one mentions his peace treaty. So they kept on saying, Muhammad, you know, that man tells his people. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. Some of the Prophet Muhammad's followers are rubbish. Yes, I'm not going to deny. They use the defensive war as an excuse for offensive wars. I'm not going to deny. It's there. Prophet Muhammad said, La There's no compulsion in religion. There are certain members of groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda who have destroyed the image of this religion. Quran says there's no compulsion in religion. The Quran says, فَمَنْ شَاءَ فَالْيُؤْمِنُ وَمَنْ شَاءَ فَالْيَكْفُرُ Whoever wants to believe, let them believe. Whoever wants to disbelieve, let them disbelieve. We go around. If you disbelieve, we'll kill you. We go around. If someone leaves the religion of Islam, they have to be killed. Why they have to be killed? Why? Usul al-Din cannot be forced upon you. Someone, apostates, let them leave. If now I hear someone in the Muslim community has decided that Islam is not the religion for them, why are you forcing them? Show me an eye in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that somebody who leaves the religion of Islam go there and behead him and kill him. You can certainly show me some hadiths which you claim are from the Prophet Muhammad about people who've committed treason against the state. 
where they enter the religion, they get certain information and then they leave. That's different from someone who apostates. But they say the apostate, you have to kill him. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon his family, captures some prisoners after the battle of Badr. And everyone's thinking, let's kill them, let's kill them. There are famous companions who are begging, you know, let's kill them. And he turns around and says, no. They teach our people how to, you know, read and write, read and, write and we'll let them free. Now, don't get me wrong, there are these discussions about slave girls and things like this, which I think, I think we have, we, we have two Prophet Muhammads in our, in our lives. There's the real Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon his family, and there's uh, Prophet Muhammad, which I think Bani Umayyah and Bani Abbas done a great job mm-hmm. in making a Prophet that suited their empires and their political needs. Um, and I think our hadiths have got a lot of nonsense. Not just about all the prophets of God, but the prophet Muhammad as well. <coughs> so in the case of him being a man who spread the religion by the sword, on the contrary, his greatest victory was the Hudaybiyah peace treaty. And there were Christians of Najran who were living in his time. They were able to worship in their churches and so on. In terms of him being a man of lust, you mentioned Khadija. Because people say Muhammad married nine wives. We looked at you know, certain biblical versions of Solomon and the man was close <laughs> to a thousand according to their opinion. So nine's not doing too bad. But when he married Khadija, did he sh- marry anyone else? No. no. He married Khadija when he was 25 and he had, he had a marriage with Khadija for 26 years. Man of lust couldn't marry any other lady at that time. The prime of his youth and prowess. And he doesn't marry anybody else. After Khadija dies, there are certain political marriages there are certain legal issues that had to be administered. Like when David married Bathsheba, he married her because at that time people wouldn't marry widows. Likewise, the Prophet, peace be upon his family, there are certain marriages that he has because of bringing a certain law into place. But I defy anyone to show me any wife of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, ever complaining about his behavior with them or whether he was unjust with them or whether he hit them or whether he beat them and so on. So therefore, these insults which are leveled are insults which can easily be addressed. Sayyidina, we have, uh, you know, Medina, Treaty of Hudubaya, the conquest of Mecca. Is this the right time now for Rasulullah to name a successor? Yeah, every prophet we mention very clearly. That every prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't leave the world without making clear who his successor is. Because God reveals to him who the successor is. Otherwise, if you leave it to the people to decide who shall be his wasi or his khalifa, people will choose their best mates or they'll choose somebody who suits their tribe or somebody who suits their political endeavors. Or they won't pick the person who should be the leader because he may have killed their dad before or he may have been in opposition to them at a certain battle. Hence why God, whenever he talks of khilafa in the Quran, he always mentions that he chooses. Never do you find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ever saying you choose. So someone once came and said, oh, um, there's a surah called Surah Al-Shura and that shows that you, you know, people have to come together and choose. 
If that's the case, the second Khalifa wasn't chosen in Ashura. It was the first Khalifa who chose him. So what happened to the concept of Shura when the second Khalifa became Caliph? Prophet, peace be upon his family, clearly no Muslim can deny that the incident of Ghadir took place. And that before he passed away, he made it clear that Ali, son of Abu Talib, was the master of all the Muslims and the foremost in authority. Am I not the awla? Yes. The context was the word awla, as mentioned in Surah 33, verse 6. Now, whether a Muslim wants to believe that, you know, some Muslims, interestingly, they say that no, he implicitly said that it was, you know, the first Khalifa because the first Khalifa led prayers. Then there's, you know, if everybody believed that there was no need for a saqifa where people have got together without even knowing mm. that the first Khalifa had anything to do with leadership. There was certainly a group of people who hated Ali. Um, I think that there's no doubt about. And, um, but for us it's clear. I don't care who became Khalifa. You know, for me, Ali ibn Abi Talib all day. You know, it's, it's as clear as day. Ali ibn Abi Talib in philosophy. Ali ibn Abi Talib in mystical. Ali ibn Abi Talib in knowledge and bravery and valor. You know, everybody has their own tastes. And I drunk from the love of Abu Turab. And for me, Abu Turab is life. You can go and have whoever you want. Arab pagans, ex-idol worshippers, sons of adultery, you can pick whoever you want. While I have Abu Turab, I'm always comfortable. And as the Prophet said, Ali is to me like Aaron was to Moses. Ali is with the truth, the truth was Ali. I am the city of knowledge and Ali is its gate. <coughs> clear as day. But then not everything as clear as day is necessarily seen by hearts which are evil. Yep. It's very beautifully put. Now, what do you have to say to those who say that, no, the Prophet is the last of the Prophets, he's the seal of the Prophets. The ayah that I read beforehand, uh, Surah 30, verse 44, talks about Khatam, I mean, the seal of the Prophets. Yeah. I mean, there's no one after him. And then we have those like Ahmadis and also those uh, Baha'is who believe that the Prophet hasn't finished, there's, there's more to come. No, the ayah is clear in Surah 33, verse 40. You know, he is Khatam al-Anbiya, he's the seal of the Prophets. Um, and even we have the hadith which is clear, Ali is to me like Aaron was to Moses, except there is no prophet after me. So these 19th century groups like the Ahmadis or, or the Baha'is, you know, these were only 19th century groups who came out with their own interpretations. And, um, and they live amongst us. And I think, you know, in the name of social plurality, we don't want to start causing offense to anybody but for us it's clear that the seal of prophethood is the holy prophet peace be upon him his family and that after him the imams of al muhammad are our guides they've left us with the knowledge for us to be able to gain closeness to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that we pray allah raises us with the son of fatima now so you say that rasulullah is a mercy to the whole of mankind i mean the jews have moses the christians have jesus do they actually need Rasulullah Why do they need Muhammad? I think it's a great question. I, I think you can, you can live a great life. You can, you can live a, you know, a, a very, you know, very pious. good life, pious life, you know, believing in Moses and believing in Jesus. I think Moses comes with the law and Jesus comes with the spirit of the law. And I think the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, comes with the fusion, mm -hmm. the spirit and the letter. It's a beautiful, perfect combination. 
Um, I don't think you lose out on learning about the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon his family, studying him. I think there's mo so much to gain. And your criteria for following Moses and Jesus, you shouldn't really have a problem in following Muhammad, peace be upon him and his family. Final question, said, have we understood Rasulullah um, I think there needs to be a reassessment constantly. I think we pick and choose the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that we want rather than the real man himself. But I also think in Islamic literature, I think there's the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon his family, painted in a disgusting way by Abbasid and Umayyad scribes. Hence, Salman Rushdie was able to write the satanic verses. And then I believe there's the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon his family, as taught to us by Imam al-Baqir and Imam al-Sadiq and the Imams of Ahlul Bayt. And that's the Prophet who we all admire. Thank you, thank you very much, Sayyid. Final thought for the viewers. I mean, we've had well, I thank a long, long discussion you know, we've had. We've been together for the holy yeah. month of Ramadan. Well, yes. And it's been a great honor uh, to have gone through these prophets. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because of this small endeavor, which the team has worked together on, that he accepts these presentations. If we have offended anyone, forgive us. If there are any prophets we have not represented properly, then we ask them to forgive us, if we ever get across them in Barzakh, you know. Yes. Um, and we pray to Allah to provide us the intercession of these prophets, you know. Mm -hmm. There are certain personalities in the history of the religion of Islam, alive and dead, who have given a lot back to the prophets of Allah and they deserve special mention. <coughs> of them, Shaykh Al Kulaini, in his masterpiece Al Kafi. Of them, Qutb al Din al Rawandi. Of them, Baqir Majlisi, no doubt. And of those who are alive, people like Sheikh Radwan Arastu, who worked diligently to write about the prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And his work is underestimated and how much effort that he has put in. And then all of our ulama who have worked on books of tafasir of these verses, May Allah bless them all and may Allah bless the production team. And that's why now when we go into the fundraiser, which we're about to begin, I know the team has asked me to stay for the fundraiser. You know, there's some great work being done behind the scenes and I just hope that we can reach our goals fundraising wise because I take it, you know, I promise all of you viewers that I'll continue doing shows and series. Mm -hmm. But we need to pay the camera team, the technicians, the staff, you know, we need those behind the scenes to also get the best equipment possible. I know sometimes that what we produce sometimes disconnects, it goes off air, people miss out on it. And we're trying our hardest and the Imam Hussein TV team are trying their hardest. And I know that they have a campaign tonight, you know, 20 pounds a month. They're trying to get 200 people to, you know, sponsor. 20 pounds a month and I really sincerely hope that these 20 odd profits that we have discussed are enough for people out there to help the team and show their appreciation. So pound a profit, you can't go wrong. Thank you very much Sayyid and thank you to all of you for joining us over the whole season series to do with Prophethood on Live in London. Uh, stay tuned as we're going to have the live fundraiser next here on Imam Hussain TV. We'll see you in a second. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We encourage you to look at our audio library for more content on Quran, ethics, lifestyle and spirituality. 
Imam Hussein TV3, your gateway to Karbala.